Thank you very much for the opportunity to present on behalf of the pediatric urologists who attended this year's AUA. In total, over 400 abstracts were submitted and nearly 80 were presented at 11 scientific sessions at the SPU and SFU. From these excellent ab abstracts, seven clinical prize finalists were selected and four basic, size pri basic science prize finalists were, were also selected. I wanted to just quickly highlight the basic science prize winner and clinical prize winner from the SPU. Uh, Dr. Z and colleagues uh, presented activation of a central immunosuppressive cascade, which prevents testicular ischemia reperfusion and uh, injury. This group from DC taught us about a mouse model for testicular torsion in which they administered a uh, immunosuppressive agent called cytosine in an attempt to decrease testicular injury at the time of torsion. What they found was that testis weight in the, the mice who had received cytosine was significantly higher than those who had not, indicating that cytosine presents testicular atrophy. Additionally, Dr. Z and colleagues showed us that cytosine presents, uh, prevents testicular fibrosis in rats when administered around the time of a torsion event. The clinical prize winner this year went to the group from Indiana University. This abstract was presented by Dr. Ben Whittem on behalf of his colleague, Dr. Szymanski, and they taught us about validation and preliminary results of the Parental Assessment of Children's External Genitalia Score for Females, or PACE-F, and this was a, uh, a measure administered to parents of girls with CAH. Uh, this is a modification of the genital parents score administered to 56 parents of 41 girls, the vast majority of whom had undergone genital re uh, reconstruction for CAH. In their study, they established the val validity of their new tool and also demonstrated that the PACE-F scores improved significantly uh, after genital reconstruction in patients with congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Moving on to Sunday, we came over here to the Moscone Center, as I mentioned, and the first uh, session was a moderated poster on dysfunctional avoiding and aneurysis. In this session, we learned that at least alone, TENS is not an effective treatment for nocturnal aneurysis. There were two randomized studies presented that looked at transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, or TENS, um, as therapy for nocturnal aneurysis. And what these found was were that the number of white wet nights may decrease somewhat. However, alone, TENS is not an effective treatment for nocturnal aneurysis, so multimodal therapy is imperative. There were also several posters presented that indicated that dysfunctional voiding appears to be due to a central defect. So rather than just a bladder level issue, the award-winning poster from India, uh, which is entitled Changes in Brain Activity Following Transcutaneous Posterior Tibial Nerve Stimulation for Lower Urinary Tract Symptoms in Pediatric Patients, indicated that, that the defect in dysfunctional voiding is really due to a brain issue. So in this study, they uh, did PET scans before and after nerve stimulation and found very substantial changes in brain activity that correlated with changes in the patient's symptoms. So this was felt to be the most uh, impactful poster from that session. Um, this hypothesis that dysfunctional voiding appears to be due to a central defect was also supported by a retrospective study from the Naval Medical Center in San Diego, where they showed a correlation between non-neurogenic voiding dysfunction and neuropsychiatric disorders in pediatric patients. The group from Indiana also taught us about uh, pediatric sac sacral nerve stimulator 
explantation, figuring out when uh, explants had to happen in their pediatric patients. And their results were actually quite encouraging. What we learned was that there's actually a low explant rate of SNS in pediatric patients uh, for complications. However, after two years and beyond, many of these patients actually got better. And so that explant for cure actually started to happen pretty often after two years, which is encouraging because we can counsel our families that although an implant might be necessary for a short period of time, they may not be committing to their child to an implant for the long haul. Uh, the last abstract I wanted to highlight from the first session on Sunday was the introduction of the pectoral urgency scale, which the group from UC Davis presented to us as a new tool for evaluating bladder perception in children. As many of you know, it's sometimes hard to elicit uh, really detailed um, information from kids, especially young kids. So this was a very novel way in which the author showed us that this pictorial scale you see depicted above correlated with verbal descriptors as well as bladder volume on VCUG. Um, indicating the degree of urgency that the child felt. Dr. Kurzak and colleagues felt that this scale has potential use for both clinical and research uh, purposes in pediatric patients. Moving on to the video session, I found it interesting that all 12 videos either focused on robotic surgery, extrophy, or both in one case, and just wanted to highlight that the Pediatric Video Prize winner was uh, from the UK, entitled Bladder Extrophy Radial Artery Phalloplasty, in which the authors uh, demonstrated some unique issues related to phalloplasty and extrophy patients, and also showed their technique for saphenous vein interposition graft. So congratulations to the group from London. In the final pediatric session at the AUA this year, well, we discussed urinary tract infection and vesicoureteral reflux in a moderated poster session. In this session, we learned that contemporary reimplant success rates may be lower than what uh, was published historically, at least for patients with high-grade vesicoureteral reflux. In these two papers, one from UCSF and the other from uh, the University of Chicago, uh, they both examined high-grade vesicoureteral reflux patients and the success rates of both robotic reimplant, as shown in the series from Chicago, and open reimplant, as shown in the series from UCSF, were much lower than, than the very high success rates traditionally published for ureteral reimplantation surgery. And finally, the award-winning poster in the afternoon session went to Seattle Children's Group, doctors on Barando and colleagues. Uh, what they um, examined was the use of routine preoperative urine cultures in patients who are undergoing pyeloplasty surgery as well as reimplant surgery. Uh, this group received a report from NISQIP in 2013, during which uh, they were found to be high outliers in terms of the number of postoperative urinary tract infections. So their group started to institute routine uh, uh, urine cultures for all patients or for nearly all patients after that time point. Uh, despite the, uh, the um, institution of routine urine cultures, however, they found that routine preoperative screening urine cultures did not decrease the risk of postoperative urinary tract infections, and it sounds as if they may revise their protocol in the future. So thank you very much for the opportunity to present the pediatric uh, take-home points, and we'll see you in Chicago next year. Thank you. It's an honor to have the chance to present some of the highlights of the SPU meeting uh, this morning. It's, of course, on behalf of all the countless attendees, organizers, and staff who made that meeting possible that I'm, I'm here. I have no disclosures. So this year was the 66th annual meeting of the SPU, which now stands for the Societies for Pediatric Urology. We had a distinguished group of guest lecturers, 
uh, at the meeting, including a fascinating panel uh, comprised of Duke's Jonathan Ruth, Boston Children's Carlos Estrada, and Michigan's Julian Wan. And these three presented on unwarranted variation in pediatric urology, featuring a dis discussion of the promise and limitations of business management techniques in addressing this variation. The legendary Mr. Philip Ransley provided us an overview of the subspecialty of pediatric urology and a glimpse of where we, we may be going in his own unique style. And David Miller of the University of Michigan gave us a tour of the Music Collaborative, an important and tremendously successful venture combining clinical practice, academics, and payers in an effort to improve the quality of urological care. And these speakers gave us varied and thoughtful perspectives to consider and inform our work in the coming year. We also had a session on trans transition care and, and congenitalism, which uh, featured a discussion of the medical issues of adults with spina bifida, as well as long-term survivorship after childhood cancer. And then finally, there was a report by our uh, SPU DSD task force, who, who are working with our specialty and policymakers and advocates to keep all treatment options available for DSD patients. There was a remarkable amount of science presented this year's SPU. Over 450 abstracts, sorry, 480 abstracts were submitted to the meeting. And from these, we selected the top seven scoring papers, which represented just 1.5% of the total as the clinical prize finalists. And an additional 22 abstracts were designated as honorable mentions, rounding out the top 5%. And in addition, there were four basic science papers which were named as prize finalists. And I thought it would be worth individually reviewing some of these superb presentations. Van Batavia and colleagues from CHOP presented a remarkable series of 78 adolescents with varicocele, all of whom had a semen analysis performed. And the authors determined whether anatomic features such as testis volume, as well as hormone levels, correlated with total modal sperm counts. And they did find that FSH inhibin and testicular volume correlated with sperm counts and proposed that combining these different measures may predict oligospermia well enough to defer semen analysis in those patients for whom that would be appropriate. Daryl McLeod presented the work of a group of multi-institutional group uh, of patients with posterior urethral valves, and they looked at factors predicting the need for renal replacement therapy. This is a very low, large cohort of a rare condition and they confirmed prior work that showed that serum nadir creatinine, or SNC, was highly predictive of future need for replacement therapy. The authors also found that approximately 50% of patients were on CIC by age 14, although there was wide variation by center, again suggesting the need for uh, standardization of the approach for these complicated patients. This Kaplan-Meier curve from their presentation shows how the risk over time of need for renal replacement therapy varies dramatically according to that serum nadir creatinine that you see. Greg Tajan and his colleagues from CHOP performed an interesting study of a behavioral intervention in adolescents with stones using smart, uh, smart water bottles to track intake over a period of time. And disappointingly, they found that only 20% of adolescents met their fluid intake target. And they determined that many adolescents lacked the awareness of their intake and that this lack of awareness contributed significantly to that poor intake. 
And so this serves as a potential target for future interventions in this difficult population who are at risk for recurrent stones. An important examination of research ethics and disclosure was presented by a group from Mayo, Duke, and Pittsburgh. And they analyzed the pediatric robotic surgical literature and used online payment disclosure systems to analyze which authors of these papers had previously received payments from Intuitive Surgical, which, as we all know, is the manufacturer of the most widely used robotic system, the Da Vinci. And the investigators then examined the disclosure of these prior payments by these authors in the robotic surgical literature. And they further determined whether author payment history correlated with the favorability of each paper's findings with respect to robotic surgery. They found that overall, at least one author had received payment from Intuitive for 80% of the articles reviewed. And amazingly, 92% of those articles did not fully disclose the payment history of the authors. Furthermore, of those authors who had received payment, 100% of them had at least one paper in which they appeared as an author but did not disclose the payment history. Lastly, if either the first or the last author had received payment, the paper was significantly more likely to present robotic surgery in a favorable light. So this group's work sheds light on the need for more thorough vetting and disclosure of potential conflict of interest in the pediatric urology literature, and particularly with respect to robotic surgery, so that all readers can appropriately evaluate the science being presented and the potential impact of conflicts of interest. Two abstracts from Anderson and colleagues from Gutenberg, Sweden, reported on long-term outcomes of adolescents and young adults who underwent proximal hypospadias repair as young children. The group examined urological and psychosexual outcomes. And although these numbers are not particularly large, this is a very difficult population to follow in the long term. So these, these uh, data are pretty important. They found that from your, for the urological outcomes, the group found that there was increased need for reoperation for both ducket and onlay operations compared to the tubularized incised plate repair. Eventual urinary function was pretty good for all groups, but they found that there appeared to be increased residual curvature in the tip group, possibly due to poor growth of the urethral plate which was used. From a psychosexual standpoint, they compared the proximal repair group to results in patients who'd undergone a distal repair, as well as to a normal control group. And they found that the proximal repair group generally did pretty well, with similar uh, sexual interest, age at sexual debut, proportion that were sexually active, and overall sexual satisfaction. Now, the proximal group did have greater concerns with penile length, with erectile function, and ejaculatory function. But all the groups were found to have similar educational attainment, well-being, and body esteem, which is encouraging in that these, these boys seem to do well as they age. The group from Riley Children's in Indianapolis developed a scale to grade the appearance of female genitalia for use in girls with congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And they found that the scale reflected surgical improvements as expected, with pre-op scores being worse than the reference population, while the scores improved to be similar to controls after reconstructive surgery. And this sort of tool should facilitate patient-reported and parent-reported outcome assessment in the CAH population and potentially other children with uh, congenital genital anomalies. This paper, by the way, was the winner of the prize finalist competition.
Finally, uh, in the time that we have, of course, it would be impossible to do justice to the incredible laboratory science being performed in pediatric urology, pediatric urology groups all around the world. But I do want to acknowledge the four basic science prize finalists. So Telly and colleagues from Ankara and Turkey identified urinary nerve growth factor as a predictor of lower urinary tract symptoms in children. And they hypothesized that this may serve as a marker and eventually a potential target for therapeutic interventions. Rebecca Z and colleagues from Children's National Medical Center investigated cytosine. That's a typo there. It's not cysteine. It's cytosine. Immunosuppression in a, in a rodent model of testicular torsion. And they found that this agent reduced inflammation and testicular atrophy compared to controls. This is a fairly significant finding of a potential therapy that might uh, help us reduce the risk of torsion-related uh, atrophy in patients who, in whom we salvage the testis. And this uh, paper did win the competition for the best basic science prize in uh, pediatric urology. Now this is not a typo. The intrepid Dr. Z did in fact have two basic prize finalists. And in her second abstract, her group investigated a schistosomiasis-derived protein for treatment of bladder pain and inflammation in a mouse bladder injury model. And lastly, uh, Christina Ching and her colleagues at Nationwide Children's Hospital studied changes in the female genitourinary microbiome using a large group of girls at various ages and found that the microbiome does indeed change over time and with developmental milestones and, uh, not surprisingly, with a history of UTI and antibiotic exposure. Now, there were, of course, dozens more fantastic papers presented this year, and I wish that we had time to highlight all of them. Nevertheless, it has been an honor to give you this taste of the best of the best in pediatric urology this year. And we thank Dr. Manga and the AUA for the opportunity to present. Thank you. Uh, thank you, and good morning. And, uh, we appreciate the opportunity to speak. My name is Julian Wan. I'm the current section editor. And during calendar year 2017, there were many excellent articles. After polling the editorial board, the following articles were regarded as being particularly notable, and we call them to your attention. We begin with an article by Tazian and Associates in January of 2017, looking at the reoccurrence of stones in children. Stones is now becoming an increasingly important and unfortunately common condition in children worldwide. A retrospective study of first-time stone formers found a 50% of the reoccurrence risk in the first three years and a 60% decrease of that risk if a 24-hour urine collection was successfully completed. And perhaps this is a marker of patient compliance. Finlayson, Finlayson and associates in March of 2017 looked at the presence of germ cells in gonads of patients with disorders of sex development. Overall, 68% had germ cells being found, with a peak at 88% during the first three years of life, and it dropped down to 43% by age 12 or older. This observation is important because of possible future fertility preservation, and it might force our hand to do something earlier and to make a decision earlier on, and we can't defer it until later. In the same March 2017 issue, Cost and Associates surveyed oncology care by pediatric urologists. A survey of pediatric members of the society found that 78% were referred five or fewer oncology cases each year. 
Now, this was not due to a lack of interest. 75% of the respondents also reported interest in further training and education in pediatric and adolescent oncology beyond what they received in fellowship. There were several grading systems currently used for prenatal or antenatal hydronephrosis. Braga and Associates compared the initial SFU grading system with that of the urinary tract dilation system and looked at how the grade groups uh, coordinated with their clinical outcomes. In a comparative study of 322 patients, they found that both systems were equally good at at-risk stratification and prediction of future febrile UTIs and the need for surgery. Aoyami and Associates described a new approach to obstructed megaureters in children. This was an initial study describing a surgical procedure in 32 patients. It was a novel side-to-side -side ureteral cystotomy approach that can be done through a keyhole incision. This is a very interesting alternative to a currently used cutaneous ureterostomies and refluxing, refluxing reimplantations. Kayan and associates from Turkey compared the paternity rates in adolescents that were treated with varicoceles. And they contributed further to the discussion about whether or not earlier intervention versus observation. They found that the group that underwent microscopic repair had a paternity rate of 77% as compared to those who were observed and watched at only 48%. There was also noted a significant rise in sperm concentration and motility. Simansky and associates surveyed adults with spina bifida and to assess the effect of urinary and fetal incontinence on quality of life. There are now more patients alive with spina bifida as adults than there are children. So this is an increasingly significant issue for us to deal with. They found that the quality of life dropped proportionally as urinary incontinence increased. Most importantly, any fecal incontinence, however, completely negatively affected quality of life regardless of amount or frequency. Long and Associates of Philadelphia looked at the follow-up of patients who underwent proximal hypospadias repair. They found an overall 56% complication rate mostly due to fistula leading to reoperation and uh, further work. Notably, one-third of one-stage repairs had two or more complications, whereas 84% of those who underwent a staged or so-called two-stage repairs had zero or only one complication. So it appears that despite decades of work, uh, the solution for a one-stage proximal hypospadias repair remains elusive. Finally, Gotti and associates in a randomized prospective controlled study looked at laparoscopy and open pyeloplasty. They found that the differences in operative time and hospital stay were not clinically significant, and they suggested that we may have reached a point where uh, patient and family preference and surgical preferences may be equivalent. This paper suggests that we might be at the inflection point, like cholecystectomy once was, where laparoscopy may now become a primary method of doing pyeloplasties. I want to thank all the reviewers and the authors for their work, and thank you for the opportunity to present them to you today. Thank you.